0: Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Shinaz Suleiman. Shinaz is the CEO of Menlo Park, California based Recode Therapeutics. Recode is working on lipid nanoparticles to improve the delivery of genetic medicines. These little packages have made it possible to deliver billions of messenger RNA COVID vaccines into people's arms, saving millions of lives. It's been two decades of hard work. The strides ahead in delivery have fired imaginations of how to do even more. Recode is based on technology from the lab of Daniel Sigwart at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, where he and colleagues have worked on a fifth biochemically distinct lipid in addition to the four commonly used in Moderna's COVID vaccine, to allow for targeted delivery to tissues and to bypass the liver where so many lipid nanoparticle-delivered therapies end up. Recode raised a $120 million Series B extension in June of 2022, and that money will help advance the work into clinical trials. The first application is with mRNA constructs delivered via aerosol to the lungs. The company is starting with primary ciliary dyskinesia and has another program for cystic fibrosis. With new therapeutic modalities, whether it be antisense, RNA interference, or messenger RNA among them, one of the key lessons of biotech history is the importance of getting delivery right. It usually takes longer and requires more creativity than most people expect at first. Shanaz comes to this opportunity after overcoming some significant obstacles in life. She grew up in apartheid-era South Africa. She fought against injustice. She saw medicine as a field in which she could address health inequities. She went on to a career in the pharmaceutical industry, and one of the things she did there was work to make life-saving HIV medicines more accessible around the world. Today, she's using her platform as a biotech CEO to speak up in defense of women's reproductive rights, and she's making policies at her company consistent with this view. She's part of a new generation of biotech leaders who choose to speak up on issues of the day that she believes are integrally linked to the mission of biotech, the treatment of disease and the alleviation of suffering and death. Now, if you enjoy listening to shows like this on the long run, you will love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, companies like Recode, You can also get my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Discounts are available for group subscriptions. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast group subscriptions to Timberman Report, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. She's at stephanie at That's Stephanie spelled with a ph. Now, please join me and Shanaz Suleiman on The Long Run. Shanaz Suleiman, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you. So, Shanaz, I'm uh, I'm excited to have you on the show today because you're uh, you're squarely positioned in one of the the big I think underreported stories of biotech innovation of the past couple years, and that is delivery. And you know the the funny thing is, like <laughs> I think there's a saying in real estate you've probably heard location, location, location. And I think in biopharma, maybe sometimes I should tack this up on my office wall. Uh, It's delivery, delivery, delivery. We don't talk about it enough. Uh, It's really, really important.
1: Completely agree. (laughs) Um, I think, Luke, we are on the cusp of a bright future for genetic medicine. And delivery is really the key to unlocking that future. And that's why I'm really excited about some of the work we're doing here at Recode, where we are pioneering a novel delivery platform. It happens to be a lipid nanoparticle platform that can deliver just a wide array of genetic cargos to organs and cells that were previously unreachable. Uh, I would like to think of ourselves as uh, the delivery partner to the world, building on the successes of COVID vaccines, to go beyond vaccines and beyond the liver. So super excited to talk about uh, what we're doing and our efforts to advance to the clinic, uh, which will happen pretty soon.
0: Well, we'll get into all of that in the second part of the show, but I'm glad you mentioned the COVID vaccines because that's really just this worldwide proof point that um, you know it wasn't just the mRNA code for the spike protein. It's the fact that people over the years had figured out a lipid nanoparticle delivery system that allowed um, the pharmaceutical industry and its academic collaborators to overcome that historical challenge with getting the mRNA into the cells be- without them being chewed up and destroyed by, you know, immune reactions. And th- these lipid nanoparticles just don't get the, the credit, the glory. <laughs> it was a critical enabling technology that, that made those vaccines the success that they have been.
1: It truly was, Luke. And I think um, the mRNA piece was also underappreciated. If you think about the decades of uh, scientific innovation that went into optimizing just the mRNA piece until you know the finding of an exceptional use case in the form of COVID vaccines to really demonstrate to the world the importance of genetic medicines, coupled with... The co-packaging to a lipid nanoparticle carrier, which was absolutely essential to enabling the mRNA to be sustainable, deliverable and actionable. Um, I think it's fascinating that this whole language around genetic medicine has actually made it into, um, lay people's vernacular because now even when I speak to, you know, people in my family who have no idea what we do in biotech, they seem to get that it's mRNA and it's packaged to something else. I think the challenge now is to think about where we go from here.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a really uh, interesting confluence, both with the chemistry of the nucleic acids and the delivery package. And for those for people out there listening who've heard of CRISPR, if you've heard of gene therapy, uh, these are critical enabling technologies that are going to help pave the way for all of those things. Okay, so we'll, we'll get into more about, like, your specific idea on Recode and how you're going to apply some of these tools later. But I, I want to start with a little bit about you. Uh, where are you from originally, Shanaz?
1: I am from South Africa. So, uh, a proud South African. Born and raised um, in a tiny neighborhood in the Cape Flats, um, which uh, called Athlone. And uh, I, you know, was a child of apartheid in the sense that uh, my family were anti-apartheid activists, Uh, I attended high school right in the heat of the mass democratic movement. Uh, Spent a lot of time protesting for Nelson Mandela's release. And it will become obvious later why he is my iconic leader. It was a a crazy time for South Africa. And uh, we were in the eye of the storm.
0: Now you say Cape Flats. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know the geographies that well. Is this Cape Town?
1: It is Cape Town, but, you know, it's kind of, we joke about it because it's the backside of that beautiful mountain called Table Mountain. The front side looks more like the French Riviera. The backside is unfortunately where so-called non-white families were relocated to when the Group Areas Act was put into commission that uh, essentially segregated communities and said, this is the area in which you will live. So the Cape Flats is sort of a very flat, barren wasteland on the backside of the mountain, and it's where communities were kind of relocated to. And, uh, but it became, even though the the landscape is fairly barren, it became a very vibrant community with um, all these communities of colored, so-called black, uh, so-called non-white people coalescing together to essentially uh, rebuild, you know, community infrastructure and uh, a real sense of cohesion. even in the face of apartheid.
0: Now, where were your parents from and how did they end up coming to South Africa?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting story, uh, Luke. We are, you know, fifth generation Asian and Malaysian immigrants that, well, well, immigrants might be overstating the case, but were brought as indentured laborers really to work on the plantations in South Africa back in the, gosh, you know, 17th, 18th century. And so we, we are kind of fifth generation derivatives of that system. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I don't have a lot of ethnic roots, uh, and, and ties to Malaysia and India because my cultural identity is South African and around the identity politics, um, in the anti-apartheid movement. But of course we retained, um, you know, some of the cooking and, Maybe a bit of the language and um, you know the the cultural heritage associated with those communities, but a, a a new form of that. So you know we have the Cape Malaysian community, which is very distinct from a traditional Malaysian community. We have um, some of the Indian roots from uh, way back when, but but a different version of that. I think perhaps you know secular and um, uh, a little bit more again tied to our cultural identity uh, in South Africa and the time period within which we grew up.
0: Interesting. So you're not a child of privilege. Um, what, what did your parents uh, do for a living when they were not protesting the apartheid regime? Uh,
1: they ran a driving school. So, um, neither, neither of my parents actually finished high school, believe it or not. And, and that was, you know, partly a function of how apartheid worked. Um, to really disable opportunities um, for uh, individuals who were not white, and so my parents were pragmatists. They um, they were sort of trainee teachers with no high school education. They met and fell in love and and started a driving school, um, <laughs> which was how they um, kind of moved to Cape Town and um, and you know tried to form a life there. And so uh, you know my whole life has really been about. Um, sort of a textbook case of educational opportunities, transforming the opportunity set that was available to me because it did not come from, you know, uh, my parents, uh, through no fault of their own. And, you know, to this day, a big part of my leadership identity is rooted in, you know, learning from adversity. Uh, working through challenges, and uh, creating opportunities, um, you know, in order to uh, enable the broadest possible option set uh, possible. But that really came from, I think, the drive and motivation to succeed because there was no, there was no way this would happen without that.
0: Interesting. So what kind of school did you attend?
1: I, I attended a, a non-white public school. Um, it was uh, in the suburb of L- Rylands. And, uh, you know, we were all kind of so-called coloreds who were there. It was, uh, again, a school in the classic mold of apartheid in the sense that, you know, we had very few teachers. We, the ratio of kids to teachers, probably 40 to one, uh, very few textbooks, very few opportunities to do labs. And then, of course, in the middle of this, we were mostly outside protesting. So it was a bit of a, you know, ramshot or I I don't know what the term is, but it was a very subpar or what we used to call gutter education. And um, we had a few committed teachers who did their best, you know, to empower us to learn what we could learn to write the final exam, which was in the Commonwealth system called the matriculation exam. Of course, after four or five years of protesting and not learning what I needed to learn, my strategy to ace the exam was really focused on learning the tests. And so I studied five years worth of tests um, in order to ace the final exam, and that strategy paid off. It was what enabled me to graduate well, and that in turn enabled me to be uh, afforded an awarded an, a scholarship. Uh, that um, was the way that I got into med school.
0: So you saw you you saw education as the ticket to upward mobility. Absolutely. Um did, when did science and medicine, uh, start to, uh, appeal to you?
1: Early on, look, because we were doing a lot of volunteer work in the townships in South Africa, um, you know, in soup kitchens, uh, you know, going in to provide, uh, you know, just kind of basic food services, even when I was in high school and often we'd show up and, you know, the rains had come and of course there was no running water and electricity in these townships. And, uh, people would queue up for miles, you know, kids bare feet in mud, muddy waters, um, for a cup of soup. And, uh, sometimes mothers with babies on their backs who were coughing and, uh, were obviously ill. And, uh, you know, I, I said to these mothers, where like, should you not take your child to a doctor? And she said, well, you know, often the answer would be, we don't have the money to do this. And so um, one of the key things I did when I got to med school was participated in a, in mobile clinics and start to, you know, uh, create the opportunity for mobile clinics with student doctors to go into these townships to provide some basic primary care services. So it was really, I think, the spark for access and the ability to provide access to basic health care services started, you know, early on from, you know, first-hand experience with seeing how people, when denied those opportunities, suffer because of it and how uh, somebody else needs to step in to fill the gap.
0: So, you went to medical school locally there in Cape Town, is that right? Correct. Okay, so how did you um, afford this? Through a scholarship.
1: So, I was fortunate to win um, a scholarship that enable that paid for my entire medical school education. It was actually a really fantastic scholarship. Um, there was only one, it was called the Anglo American open scholarship. Uh, there was one in the country and I was extremely fortunate to win it. And part of the reason why they gave it to me, or at least as I was told at the time was because things had started to change politically. And, um, there was a sense from the business community as well, that they needed to be supporting leaders of the future. And because of my work in the anti-apartheid movement, because of, I guess, my, you know, (laughs) demonstrated tenacity and um, a clear vision that I had to go to med school and then ultimately work in public health or at least affect change at a level that was macro rather than micro, um, these were part of the reasons why um, I was fortunate to be the recipient of the scholarship that then took me through the first phase of the journey and med school.
0: Okay. Okay. So you went to medical school, but it sounds like early on you were thinking of a broader, like painting on a broader canvas of macro impact in public health, seeing those social issues that you describe, rather than being uh, a classic clinician who lays hands on one patient at a time uh, and, and has impact that way. Absolutely.
1: There was no question in my mind that the kind of impact that I wanted to have was beyond just one patient.
0: What kind of experience did you have there in medical school?
1: It was a really interesting one. Uh, First and foremost, it was academically really tough because you had these kids, well, I think something like 20% of the incoming class was comprised of non-white kids who had been self-funded, but who had had a gutter education in high school, and 80 percent of the class were so-called white kids who had had the equivalent of a first world education. So here we were thrown together in this milieu, which was interesting culturally, but also uh, from the point of view of you know diversity and access to education and what had come before. And so we, we really struggled. Um, there was no special commendation made for the kids that had come from townships. Uh, and we and we struggled to catch up on kind of the first three years of pre-med pre because we just hadn't had the opportunity to learn what we were supposed to learn. So it was incredibly difficult. I would also say from the point of view of social cohesion, uh, many of the kids in our class had absolutely no concept of what it had been like protesting in townships, having the tanks roll in, being tear gassed, having guns pointed to your head for the sake of an ideal. There was just no shared experience. So we had to do a lot of like uh, bridge building to enable enable us to succeed in teams, in classes, because there was so little common and shared understanding of where we had come from. But it took six years and eventually we got there. And the best, I guess, surrogate marker of uh, the fact that that experiment was successful was that When I arrived on the scene, I was branded as a firebrand. Of course, I asked questions about access and treatment and mobile clinics and what we were doing to provide services to the townships. And so people very much saw me as a firebrand. When we graduated our senior class, they asked me to give the commencement speech on behalf of the class. And that, to me, was a telltale sign that we had, in fact, built trust, that we had developed a shared understanding of where we were, as a country and a nation, and that we, in the medical school class, um, had developed a clear-eyed view of what we could do to make things better.
0: That's really amazing. What year was this that you gave the uh, commencement?
1: This was 1995.
0: Okay, so this would have been after Mandela had been released and had become president, is that right?
1: Exactly. We had our first democratic um, elections in 1994. And this would have been one year later.
0: Okay. Okay. Wow. That is really quite a story of grit. Uh, I guess we would call it that tenacity, uh, overcoming some real obstacles. Um, it's pretty. That's pretty inspiring. Um, okay. So you graduate, and then then what? Then I do a residency, and um, ironically, it
1: ended up being in a gold and diamond mining hospital. And part of that was just um, sort of pragmatic. I, you know, my scholarship was from Anglo American De Beers, the diamond mining company. And part of it was they had a great little hospital, which was a private hospital um, right in the dead center of the country, a place called Balcom, um, which was the referral hospital for a lot of the diamond mines. There were five interns. It was a 700 bed hospital. Um, it had the benefit of being sort of a little bit better funded than the public hospitals um, with the ability to have, you know, one-on-one support. Um, Unfortunately, that's not quite the way it worked out. Uh, Even though apartheid had ended, um, there was still a deep divide in the mining industry between black mine workers that did all the menial labor and white mine managers who managed them. And remember that um, in the 90s and maybe still to this day in South Africa, the mining industry tends to be a magnet for um, neighboring uh, workers from, you know, Afri- like African countries like Botswana and Lesotho, uh, you know, Namibia. And so a lot of in unskilled labor came into the country to support the work in the mines. And, of course, that meant that these poor mine workers were subject to a lot of exploitation. So there again, the activist in me rose because – um Simple things like providing toothbrushes to mine workers was something that was not on the agenda of the mining management, you know, providing medication in the languages of the Sutu and Zulu and Tswana people who came instead of English and Afrikaans. And a lot of these folks, unfortunately, did not have the benefit of even a primary school education. But I would say the most important thing that I learned in the mines came from the fact that... The HIV epidemic had hit South Africa really hard. Um, you can imagine the dynamics around migrant laborers living in single sexed hostels, um, sleeping with the same commercial sex worker who, if, she, if he or she happened to be infected with HIV, spreading that like wildfire, having them go to their homes in the rural areas, infecting their wives, and whole families being wiped out. We didn't have access to any medication at the time. AZT was not even available. And so one of the most profound experiences I had as a treating clinician was living through the epidemic of HIV, AIDS in South Africa, uh, treating patients, um, having no access to treatment, seeing patients die on my watch, and realizing the importance of innovation, not just in the developed world, but in the developing world. And the importance of making treatments available as broadly as possible.
0: Wow, that must have been really frustrating in the late 90s, as you know, we were beginning to get the first generation protease inhibitors for HIV um, here in the US. Uh, but yeah, we, we've learned a lot about unequal access uh, <laughs> it, it, since then. Um, continues to rear its head. Okay. So you, you had this experience for a while. Then um, you went off to the UK, is that right? To, 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 to Oxford. Uh, why did you do that?
1: I did that because of a, something called the Rhodes Scholarship, um, which was another tremendous pivot point in my journey, Luke, because um, it gave me the opportunity to do something totally different, to get closer to this vision of doing something larger scale. And so I did development economics, followed by business school at Oxford, uh, partially because they didn't have a public health program, which is what I really wanted to do. And development economics seemed like a good idea at the time. And then an MBA because I was a pragmatist. And I had, when while at Oxford, developed this keen sense of there's this industry out there called biotech doing fantastic, innovative work. And wouldn't it be wonderful if... um I could be a part of that and then could think creatively about how to enable um, the dispersion of, uh, you know, innovation quite
0: broadly. How how did you even become aware that there was this amazing thing called biotech?
1: Well, partially through the bankers. Um, And so my entry point into biotech happened uh, via a whistle-stop tour of investment banking. Um, Bankers had been recruiting at Oxford. Um, Lehman, in particular, was very keen on building their healthcare investment group. Maybe part of that had to do with Fred Frank and his influence, which was widely felt still. Um, uh, And and also part of it was just a concerted effort uh, by banks to specialize and, you know, build up division, you know, divisions with with uh, the kinds of skills and um, backgrounds that were more than just pure financial. It makes a lot of sense now. And now, of course, we expect all of our bankers to know all of the sides. But I think in that period, it was just the beginning of the kind of the realization that really it is about the science. The science drives the value and um, it's really important to have, um, you know, bankers understand and get the science and um, and speak, you know, have a more intensive dialogue with clients around um, how to translate that science into reality for patients and investors.
0: Okay, so the years we're talking here, late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, so now we're talking um, 2000, 2001.
1: 2001 was when I spent a summer with Lehman.
0: Okay, so this was, you know, Human Genome Project in the news. Lots of, like, stock valuations are surging. Lots of new people interested in all this new personalized medicine that we thought was coming. Um, and maybe took a little while longer, but, the, uh, but, it, but it's coming. Um okay, so uh you you did a while in uh, to, uh, work in investment banking, uh but then you went over to industry. Um, w- why did you uh go want to work uh, internally at uh, at companies developing the medicines?
1: So the first job my first job in industry happened with Gilead.
0: Um,
1: you may recall my experience in the mines um with HIV. Gilead at the time was a powerhouse um, developing a one pill once a day regimen for HIV that would completely transform the landscape of HIV treatments. I actually applied um, for the job to run the ACCESS program at Gilead, which was a program focused on enabling developing world access to treatments. Um as part of the interviewing process, I, I I met with a number of leaders at Gilead and they said, actually, we really need you in corporate development because we're trying to diversify away from HIV into newer therapeutic franchises. So how about you join our corporate development group and, oh, by the way, you'll still be able to work on access. So it seemed like the best of both worlds. So I was able to marry my passion for access with my passion for um, furthering innovation um, and, you know, played a significant role in helping Gilead think through and execute their diversification strategy beyond HIV. So I spent five or six years at Gilead, um, leading or co-leading investment thesis and subsequent acquisitions of uh, a, a number of companies that lay the groundwork for the future of Gilead beyond HIV. One of the most important things I did at Gilead was execute our mission to make HIV therapies available to the developing world, I flew to India and negotiated deals with Indian generic companies to enable them to access the technology transfer from Gilead to make one pull once a day regimens. Um, Before we did those deals, there were about 30,000 people in the developing world that had access to treatment. After those deals, when last I checked back with the Gilead team, we have something like 12 million patients in the developing world that now have access to life-saving HIV meds.
0: That's awesome. Now, what what was the difference in price? Like there was a price in the United States and then there was a price in the rest of the world. And I know that this came down a lot, how much?
1: At least 10 fold. And I think now probably closer to 20 fold. And that was a factor, Luke, of two things. The one was uh, giving the license to as many Indian generic companies as humanly possible. And uh, the second was um, incentivizing these companies to do well in the developing world with as broad access as possible in exchange for which they may or may not have access to some of the business in our commercial markets. It act as a wonderful incentive to enable uh, these generic companies to um, drive approvals, through countries in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, and proved to be very successful.
0: This is a technology transfer agreement, which uh, can uh, others can follow and and have in years sense, uh, still allows the drug to be sold for something like a dollar a day or less at, at an affordable price. And that it still leaves some room for a profit margin for the local partner.
1: Exactly, and the other piece of it that was critical was that, um, PEPFAR had subsidized the costs of these medicines in the developing world to countries that were willing to play ball. And so through U.S. funding, uh, governments were able to subsidize the price already low, the already low price of making these medicines widely available to their populations. So it was really a win-win strategy. I would say on the disincentive side, um, these were pulls that were made with a different trade dress completely different from our commercial markets. We were very strict about enforcement and uh, made it clear that should any of those pulls make their way to our commercial markets of interest, that the deals would be terminated. It proved to be a sufficient um, enough deterrent that we never really experienced that problem. And I would say that this is just a great example of how when you think creatively about how to marry business with access, um, it can it can work out well for all.
0: Yeah, because it's uh, it's not going to work for Gilead if seventy five cent HIV medicines are coming back into the U S. Uh, they they, um, they they need to be ha- rewarded for um, the the innovation in the first place uh, for a period of time.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, uh, that's how the economics of our industry work. I will say though that it was a terrific blueprint that then served as the template for how to do access. Uh, In HBV, in HCV, uh, Gilead followed the same model. And we developed long-standing relationships with generic companies that um, respected the letter of the agreement. Some of those companies did get access to our commercial market and business. And so it, it actually worked out well for all.
0: If you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of outstanding contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Discounts are available for group subscriptions. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. Okay, so you're um, early in your career, you're learning the ropes of business development uh, in addition to market access, flying around the world, all these issues. Um, What was the next challenge you took on?
1: Um, I ultimately decided to leave Gilead to uh, work at Genentech because they offered me the opportunity to do early stage drug development. I had always felt that, um, you know, real scientific value inflection happens when we achieve early proof of concept and, um, you know, started to have conversations with Genentech, uh, you know, and this was around about the time that Roche had acquired the company. So it was actually right after the acquisition, but had known enough people that had gone there and then heard great things about the culture, about the way that, uh, teams were put at the center of drug development and, um, just Genentech was still very much a powerhouse um not only in oncology but also in immunology um in neuro in a number of um therapeutic areas that were just super interesting and so i joined uh genentech in fact gred the Genentech r&d organization as a project team leader and group leader overseeing um along with someone else uh, along with three other people in fact the the portfolio of um early development projects. And this was everything from pre-IND to end of phase two. Um, it was a probably a portfolio of around, I don't know, 30 or 40 molecules, small molecules, antibodies across onc, immunology, CV metabolism, neuro, opther, and specialty care. So very broad portfolio. And the primary goal here was to really learn drug development. It was the best surrogate for drug development. I ran several projects over a period of six years, the most notable of which was um, an anti a program uh, that became part of a large prevention initiative study that ultimately didn't succeed, but was uh, quite uh, revolutionary at the time. Um, And uh, and oversaw a number of project team leaders that also ran several programs across the portfolio. It was just a terrific time to be at Genentech, to see that the culture at GRED was still very much intact, to learn drug development and the concept of, uh, you know, teams developing drugs and to be ensconced in a a totally different culture. Now, was this before
0: or after the merger with Roche?
1: It was just after. So it was an interesting time for Genentech. Um, But honestly, it was a textbook case of uh, a merger done well. It was so interesting to see. And, you know, having having done a few of these at Gilead um, and understanding the issues with post-merger integration, it was fantastic to see how well um, both sides respected each other's capabilities and how the leaders of both organizations, both Roche and Genentech, uh, managed through the post-integration.
0: Wow. Okay. So here you got experience at a couple of the Iconic companies of the industry. You're there in the Bay Area. This whole, you talked earlier about your the influences of your social and environmental milieu in South Africa. Well, now you're in a completely different place. There's all this entrepreneurial dynamism for biopharmaceuticals happening all around you. So, how did you end up making the move into uh, smaller companies and senior management?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in some ways, Luke, it felt like a natural progression, although that may not seem evident at face value. And part of that is because I think I have, you know, I'm an entrepreneur by nature. It's, it's in my DNA. I mean, moving from South Africa to the UK, to the US, um, you know, to different companies to Gilead versus Genentech, which were very different, um, very, both very successful, but both had a very different orientation. Um, it just felt like the right time to um, to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. And, um, you know, science was at the the basis of kind of that decision, but also the ability to add value on day one was really important to me. So when I went to TheraVance with Rick Winningham, it was very clear that they needed to do something uh, transformational with the Jack Inhibitor program in order to leverage the science um, you know, in immunological indications. And I knew that I could probably foster a great partnership with someone and did with the global leader in immunology, Janssen at the time, and, you know, help with portfolio optimization and start to think about where to place bets. So that was just a terrific opportunity to do that in a small setting, um, in a business development capacity, but also leveraging some of that great drug development experience from Genente. Uh, You know, that then led next to um, to Elector an immunoneurology and immuno oncology uh, leader wh- which you know in which uh they had a much bigger scope of influence around you know kind of setting strategies again thinking about deal making very intentionally we did an exceptionally large deal with uh, GSK with 700 million up front which really anchored the company um very well financially and also allowed us to do lifecycle planning around our lead compounds, the progranate franchise, and also play some bets on immuno-oncology and, um, you know, and set the company up for success. So these were just some examples of, uh, you know, opportunities to go to a place, do something fairly transformational that affected the growth trajectory of these organizations and, you know, ultimately left them in, in uh, what I hope others will agree Better, in a better place than uh than before I joined.
0: Yeah, Elector is an interesting company. I've I covered it in its early days and actually featured the then chief business officer Oni, on a previous episode of the long run. Uh spoke with him and Arnon Rosenthal at the time and and he was the CEO. You were the president, I think. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Um but now um how did you come to, um, the opportunity there at recode therapeutics And, 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 what was your first reaction when, um, you became aware of, of this new opportunity?
1: I would say that, um, you know, like you, uh, Luke, I, I, I kind of, I like to follow the trends and the science and, you know, and, um, I knew that my next thing, uh, after Elector would have to be something that had that sort of transformational allure, um, and with good people and a good team and, you know, solid science and the ability to clearly see a path to, um, you know, to patients and to ultimately to, to value creation. And, um, I, you know, from following the literature around, um, genetic medicine and the happenings, you know, the, the companies that were getting funded, um, you know, COVID and, and what that meant, the approval of the vaccines, it became clear to me that the future of genetic medicine really depended on delivery and the time to facilitate uh novel and innovative delivery uh, is now. And so when I started speaking with uh, the folks on our board who are all incredibly experienced Not just investors, but operators, people like Peter Thompson at Orbimed, who has founded and built several companies, Helen Kim at Vida, who has been, you know, a tremendous fixture and leader in our industry for decades, Ed Hurwitz at NPM. These were immediately the sorts and the phenotypes of people that I gravitated to. And when I started to interact with the RICO team, it became clear to me that they too, uh, that we we shared some DNA around um, our overall approach. The science here, of course, is superlative. It comes from the lab of Dan Siegward, who was a protege of Bob Langer's. So I would say it was the confluence of um, you know, terrific science against the backdrop of a time in which genetic medicine maybe is a coming of age, uh, with a terrific team and an incredible board who were all um, you know, super supportive and who really got it, that ultimately attracted me to Recode.
0: So these conversations were happening about when? 2021?
1: Yes, this would have been actually at the end of last year. So around about middle to uh, late last year is when I started to engage with the team. And initially it was really just, um, you know, learning about the technology and the science, getting to know people. Um, Actually, I was contemplating potentially taking on a board role at Recode. And that was part of the kind of entry point into the dialogue about uh, the team and the science. And we had just some fantastic strategic jam sessions uh, with the team, with the board, uh, which were all just um, so invigorating. And I think, you know, from that, my interests continue to grow and grow. And And in the end, it really felt like the right fit at the right time. Um and
0: I, I've, j- I've just been so thrilled to come for here. you to come in as the CEO, full time hands-on. okay, not just a board member. correct. yeah, <laughs> oh okay, okay. Can, uh, now, can you say a little bit about where the company was at at this moment in time when when you um, came to work there? had it, it had been around a few years? It had yeah. and, and what and, and how much funding had gone in, and how far along was the technology? right. So I'd say
1: that, um, you know, the new Recode, um, and I'll explain what that means in just a moment, was founded in um, a March 2020, so a couple of years ago, bringing together synergies between mRNA expertise, which came from a predecessor company called TranscriptX uh, RX, and the selective organ-targeted lipid nanoparticle platform, which came from um the old Recode, the Recode that was based in Dallas. So the board and the team sort of had the idea that it was really a confluence of these technologies coming together synergistically, which would make for a better company. So that the new Recode, if you like, came together in March 2020 and um and was anchored by an 80 million Series B, which actually was concluded in October 2021, so just before I joined. I would also say that, um, you know, the insights that had led to Recode's uh, game-changing SORT uh, LNP technology have actually been a decade in the making. And this is really, again, from the founder, our scientific founder on the LNP side, Dan Siegwood, who had the scientific vision, you know, long before LNPs became fashionable um, and the courage to try something different. And that was breaking away from conventional thinking uh, about, you know, just optimizing a four component LNP, but to add this biochemically distinct fifth lipid to it. So the science was decades in the making. The companies came together in, in you know, a few years ago, uh, bringing together these two technologies to basically engineer a best in class um, platform. And when I joined uh, our lead programs, which are in formulations of mRNA, we're just starting to kind of move toward the clinic. And so it was a great time for me to come in um, and drive that transition from preclinical to the clinic, but also to think about our expansion and diversification strategy around the platform.
0: Okay. So you made a reference to the fifth biochemically distinct lipid. now. For those unfamiliar, the lipid nanoparticles of today tend to have four components. Daniel Sigwart and his team at the University of Texas Southwestern in greater Dallas area, they've uh, envisioned and developed this fifth lipid. Uh, What does that do and what difference does that make?
1: It makes a huge difference, it turns out. And we've got a lot of science to back that up. Um, The fifth lipid is either... A positive, it's either a cation, an anion, or an ionizable lipid. And it has the effect of acting as a guide lipid to tune the biodistribution of a traditional four-component lipid to enable organ selectivity. So um, Dan had thousands of these lipids that he empirically uh, investigated over, over a period of time of many, many years. And we in-licensed that portfolio of sort lipids and then started changing the chemical nature of the fifth lipid and the molar ratio. And it turns out that depending on how you change it, you can, again, tune the biodistribution of these lipids to ena- enable two things. Number one, organ selectivity, and number two, cell tropism. And these proved to be extremely valuable properties um, to help bring to life this vision of, uh, you know, powering the next wave of genetic medicines beyond the liver. So what we have is a guide lipid that, uh, so, for example, a lung sort lipid that enables preferential selectivity for the lung and cells within the lung, um, a, a spleen lipid that goes to spleen and to T cells and B cells, and um, liver lipids that go with higher potency to the liver. And I would say that in addition to just determining that, Unique biodistribution and physical chemical properties of of these lipids. We also now uh, have the ability to kind of fine tune that um, and and understand the mechanism through which this happens.
0: And as you alluded to, today's lipid nanoparticles tend to be good at uh, getting into the liver, uh, but but not as good at uh, getting the kind of dosage or potency that people want to see in these other tissues, these other organs. Uh, so, this is um, a matter of like getting the dose and the potency right for a whole host of other um, potential therapeutics.
1: Correct. So, our lipids have the important ability to detarget the liver so that it's not acting as a sink for these LNPs and genetic medicines that are co-packaged with LNPs, but in fact, um, that they um, ensure that the vast majority of the livered cargo can in fact go to the intended organ tissues and cells beyond the liver. And so conventional four-component LNPs, which do not employ a sort lipid, you know, uh, tend to be taken up by hepatocytes. And that is really a function of binding to ApoE a serum protein, which is then taken up through um, the VLDL receptor pathway in the liver. And so with our lipids, we do not bind ApoE. This is an ApoE-independent mediated mechanism to facilitate that organ selectivity and cell tropism that I mentioned.
0: And the particles themselves, it looks like, I mean, they're really quite versatile uh, delivery um uh, trucks if you will. I mean, they can handle small uh siRNAs or microRNAs all the way up to like 5000 nucleotide long mRNAs. So and you can deliver these with different routes of administration. You alluded to aerosols, but there's also intravenous, intramuscular, subcutaneous, whatever I, have you Really like demonstrated your ability to uh deliver through these different means and get the kind of concentrations that people think are necessary for um for for new therapeutics.
1: We have certainly done that with uh, inhaled formulations of mRNA and shown uh, across species, so mice, rat, and NHPs, that we can not only deliver mRNA to the lung and to specific cell types of interest. Uh, so, for example, in primary ciliary dyskinesia. I'll lead indication in which um, there are genetic mutations in the cilia that line the airways that prohibit these from working, and patients therefore develop recurrent infections and a very bad, uh, you know, upper respiratory phenotype. Uh, we've shown that we can actually deliver dna one protein encoded mRNA into cells, ciliated cells, which are the fundamental cells that are missing the protein. And show functional expression. So that's been uh, really terrific. And also in patient-derived cells, uh, human bronchial epithelial cells, we've shown that not only can we get into these cells, but we actually see uh, protein restoration happening. So that's been very exciting. With respect to the other modes of administration, Luke, um, that is very much ongoing. So we have intrathecal formulations uh, for which we've shown some great preliminary and exciting data in the brain parenchyma. Uh, intramuscular is of course, uh, possible and intravenous formulations that will be used, I think for, for gene correction. So for looking at co-packaging next generation gene editing technologies, uh, to enable us to have a more systematic approach around, uh, fundamental gene correction, but with a sort lipid that is targeted to the specific organ that, um, Is either missing the protein or is important you know cell types that are important to target for fundamental gene editing
0: okay so some of these other routes of administration uh, are a little bit further back in the pipeline we'll stay tuned uh, on that Uh, but for now your the lead programs are aerosol in nature targeted to the lungs and specifically you mentioned cilia um now, you also uh, have a program, I believe, for cystic fibrosis, where you, you take the the gene, the mRNA for making the CFTR protein, uh, and, and, and you get that delivered where it most needs to go, uh, into the lung and certain cell types. W- where's, the, where's that program at?
1: Absolutely. And uh, so there, too, we have lead, leads identified, and the next step is to identify development candidates that we will take into the clinic. For the cystic fibrosis program, again, we have shown similarly in CF patient-derived human bronchial epithelial cells that we are able to deliver mRNA uh, through a nebulizer that safely and effectively reaches targeted cells. The target cells in the case of cystic fibrosis are not ciliated cells. They are secretory cells and goblet cells and basal cells, which are the progenitor cells of the airways. And there too, the readout is pretty simple. It's, can you do um, CFTR protein restoration, which you can measure through um, chloride flux and conductance, which we have shown in the HBE model. So it's a few months behind the PCD program, but we are uh, very excited again to move to the clinic and this time targeting nonsense mutation uh, CF patients. These are patients that have mutations that are completely not amenable to, to current therapies. Uh, CFTR modulator correctors because they they simply they they they're getting defects just simply enable no protein correction and so restoring that protein through mRNA is one approach. The other approach we'll be following there is to um, look at gene correction.
0: And something like ninety percent of CF patients today are treatable with Vertex's Trikafta. Um, so this could, uh, at least initially, help some of the ten percent of patients who who do not respond.
1: Absolutely, uh, it, it's all if, about if you that. Get,
0: if you can get the CFTR directly into the lungs and and expressing,
1: you've got that exactly right. So it's really about the ten percent, the last ten percent of patients that have no treatments, but also potentially patients who are ineligible or non responder or non responders to CFTR modulators.
0: So you got these two programs, aerosols, primary ciliary dyskinesia, and the cystic fibrosis. Uh, when do you think these will be able to go into the clinic?
1: We're filing the CTA for our PCD program next month and the IND in Q1. So we expect to be in the clinic early next year on PCD. And the CF, patient, the CF program uh, for CF patients is about six to nine months behind that.
0: Okay. Okay. So we should expect uh some results some of the early results in uh, late 23.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good guess. Uh we have some biomarker readouts for example from the PCD trial in which we'll be looking for um you know intranasal expression of protein. So that that will will have in 2023 and um hoping to get to proof of concept by late 2024.
0: Now, when we spoke earlier, I think this was um, early in the summer of 22, uh, you had raised uh, another $120 million, uh, addition to your Series B round. Uh, what um, has that enabled you to do? How are you using the money?
1: We are, yes, we have been um, fortunate to be the recipient of an expanded um, Series B round and are using those proceeds to diversify our pipeline into central nervous system diseases Uh, liver, uh, in vivo CAR T, while continuing to advance our lead mRNA programs.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, you've got these couple of programs, but you've also got um, a lot that can happen in discovery, which we alluded to some of the the different routes of administration. I'm sure there's lots of different targets and indications on your list. How do you, um, CEO, think about risk? In terms of where you're willing to take a little more, a little more risk on, and and where and which areas you'd really kind of like to mitigate and and reduce it,
1: it's a great question. Um, we have stratified the universe of opportunities into core and non-core indications. I think what's core for us are indications in the lung, specifically often respiratory diseases that ha- that are genetically mediated, uh, such as the ones we're pursuing with our leads, but then. some other ones behind that, and potentially in the liver. So I think those are two areas where we think we can um, lead programs and potentially commercialize them, particularly if they are either orphan or ultra-orphan indications. As we diversify our pipeline beyond that into CNS diseases, into oncology, into vaccines, uh, these are indications that are perhaps best served after proof of activity with a large partner. And so, We're in an active dialogue uh, with, you know, potential pharma partners uh, when we, when we are, you know, as a platform company, but also when we have data, we'll really look to diversify uh, by partnering those larger indications uh, with pharmaceutical partners. The other piece of this, which is really interesting, uh, Luke, from a, from a licensing perspective is this concept of doing technology synergy uh, partnerships. we have optimized mRNA, but our superpower is really uh, delivery, which means uh, that we are aptly positioned to uh, be a delivery partner to a vast array of cargoes that are out there. And that's everything from mRNA, tRNA, siRNA, uh, to next-generation gene editing technologies like prime and base editing. So it is our great hope that we will continue to do these um tech synergy evaluations, either as pilots or under MTA, to determine what is the optimal combination of a best-in-class gene editing technology, for example, with a best-in-class lipid nanoparticle delivery technology like the one we have. And through doing that, this will enable um, access to a wider range of target cell types, hopefully in a predictable and programmable fashion, but also with the ability to get there quicker, To accelerate the pace of innovation to gene correction, to seeing the possibilities because we've optimized it, um, then what we would have been able to do individually.
0: So there, it sounds like there will be programs that um, you will want to retain for in-house development purposes that maybe you work with a big partner on, one of the ones you mentioned. Um, And then there's others that are going to be more non-exclusive kind of deals where you just license out the the delivery technology and let someone else run with it, do what they can, and, and you get, uh, you know, a royalty. But you're not, like, directly involved in, in, in the development.
1: Less of a royalty than a profit share. Um, so a co-development, co-commercialization type construct. Because I think both components will be equally valuable to, again, uh, accelerating to the point of proof of activity or proof of concept. So this is really an equal shared cocoa kind of
0: structure. Oh, okay, well, so, so there's probably gonna be, um, I guess my question then is about like, how widely do you wanna distribute this enabling technology? Is it something that you wanna keep pretty close to, to like your people with their hands on in these cocoa kind of deals? Or is it something that will be more broadly pushed out to the whole community?
1: We're going to start small by um, being very thoughtful and selective around who we end up with as the as our tech synergy partner. But I think once we've established, you know, definitive proof of concept, the possibilities then grow from there. So I would say it's just important to be strategic in the in the choice of those initial tech synergy uh, partnerships. It really is ultimately, as it always is, about the science. And being able to show that the platform can, in fact, enable a next generation technology in a much better way than a conventional LNP would. Once we've got that down with an an initial primal base editor, um, I think it enables, it opens up the world of possibilities around other things that we could do.
0: Yeah, I guess it does help if some of those early use cases are successful <laughs> rather than uh, disseminated widely. And then you share stories about how it didn't work or it was toxic here or there and it can set back the whole field.
1: Yes, indeed. And when you, you know, when you asked about risk, I mean, the way I think about that is multifold. There's um, the de-risking that happens with the platform, which will happen in two ways. The one is by proving that this translational science does in fact lead to functional clinical outcomes in the clinic as we are doing with our lead programs and head toward the clinic. The other way is through validating the technology um, through showing enhanced um, you know, tech synergies through a partnership in which we can both present data that in fact shows that this is a much better delivery value proposition than uh, some of the more conventional delivery vehicles out there. I think the third component has to do with safety tolerability, and showing that um, you know we we are in fact de-risked from the point of view of safety, from the point of view of uh, being able to redose dose um, and uh, you know in, enable a treatment value proposition, which is currently not possible with you know viral delivery, for example, and gene therapy.
0: And you do seem to have a philosophy around publishing or presenting results. I I took I, I noted that when you when we spoke before that. You had a presentation at the American Thoracic Society where you weren't just—it wasn't just oh, "trust me, we have some cool new technology." It's no, we have some data that we can present in front of a professional society and and have people ask hard questions. Why do you um w- w- why do you do that?
1: I we you know at, I'd say at Ricard, it's it's a part of our values that uh, you know we want to generate audacious science, uh, put patients first, and. Be evidence based, and I think that we all know that it's that there are a lot of platforms that are getting funded these days, and there there it's a hotly um, a hotly co- sort of competitive market, both on the cargo side as well as the delivery side of the equation. I think the only way to really cut through that is to um, is to deliver data that uh, speaks volumes over hype. And so our approach will always be to be data-driven, uh, to generate uh, to generate the data and to, um, you know, put it out there in a way that is credible and respectable. So I think part of that is just kind of the ethos of who we are as a company and, and how we go about our business. Uh, part of it is we are working in fields that are, you know, um, nascent in some ways. A lot of progress has been made, but we want to really push the boundary around what is possible and the only way to do that i think is to be more transparent about um learnings and opportunities that enable others to also make progress
0: well i always like being able to read the primary literature or uh or or read the poster when when i can so um for whatever that's worth (laughs) um last thing shana i wanted to ask you um is i think this was shortly after you had raised your series b clearly you're at a very busy time and then um, the um, United States Supreme Court issues this uh, decision overturning Roe versus Wade. And um, you joined with uh, some of your female biotech CEO colleagues in writing an op-ed, um, which I, I actually published on Timmerman Report. And I'll, 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 I'll send that around to people who may not have seen it the first time. I'll put that in the show notes. But um, you took a stand for women in post row America. Now, based on what you said at the top of the show about your upbringing as an activist, I mean, I, I, I suspect that may have had something to do with your willingness to do that. But, um, yeah, you know, and I also know that you as a company have operations in both California and in Texas where the laws are different. Why? Now, it would have been easy for you to not say anything. You didn't have to. Why did you decide to write that piece?
1: It's far easier to do nothing. And um, my whole life has been about not taking the easy route. Uh, From the early days in which we challenged apartheid and ultimately prevailed, look, it just simply doesn't occur to me that, um, that that should stand in the way of taking a stand or indeed doing the right thing when it's obvious what that is to do. So I would say that, you know, it's a natural progression of kind of who I am as a leader. Uh, I think leadership courage is something we should all aspire to. And leadership empathy is something uh, we should have more of in the world today. Um, the erosion of basic rights around patient autonomy and privacy is important to us as an industry um, as an industry dedicated to improving human health, we should stand united in our opposition to practices that um, curtail those rights. And as biotech leaders, I think it's important that reproductive healthcare be at the forefront of uh, our mission. And so, this was some of the uh, some of the thinking around um, that letter, and more to come. By the way, <laughs> we will be issuing several calls to action. To our industry, I think what we do as individual leaders um, is really important uh, to how the industry ultimately gets perceived. And um, if we take stands on important issues, and uh, we, we, you know, we further not just the industry's uh, mission, but kind of stand up for what we believe to to be important in in terms of our call to action of healthcare for all. Um, I think that will have uh, numerous positive uh, consequences for us all.
0: Did you make any changes to company uh, HR policy or anything like that uh, after this decision was made?
1: We committed to providing financial support and time off to our employees who needed to travel to obtain reproductive health care services and um, have you know facilitated a mechanism to enable that. Um, and, you know, continue to be supportive.
0: So after you published this, uh, this editorial, what happened next?
1: Well, there was just a groundswell of support for this. A lot of inbound inquiries. Um, we created a task force um, with, you know, uh, with many, uh, a task force of women who were uh, committed to the issues. And I would say not just reproductive health issues, but women's health Uh, overall, and that task force, um, is going to continue to raise our voices, both individually and cross sectionally. Um, and our goal will be to continue to maintain vigilance and, um, you know, our efforts to collectively, um, fight to improve human health for all. So the task force exists. You'll see some, you'll see some, uh, letters coming out from the task force again, calls to action. Um, with some very specific, uh, you know, issued calls to action around uh, reproductive health. But I think the goal is for this to be um, a mechanism through which to continue to take a stand, um, you know, to raise our voices and again, ultimately in service of improving human health for all.
0: Really fascinating um, story. And thank you for sharing your journey uh, with us today, Shanaz, on the long run.
1: Thank you, Luke, for believing that it was
0: worth sharing. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.